Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Not only are Texans facing uncertainty about the reliability of our electric grid, we're also facing much higher costs for the electricity that we buy. In fact, according to a new report, Texans could be on the hook for an additional $10.5 billion in, in the costs related to Winter Storm Uri. We're going to talk about all that and more on, with the author of that report, Robert Bryce, on this week's episode of the Liberty Cafe. Hi, my name is Bill Peacock, and thank you for coming and joining us on the Liberty Cafe. It's always a blessing to have you here with us, and it's also a blessing to be here because we're sponsored by Texas Scorecard. It's a great group of men and women over there fighting for liberty at your local government level, at the state level, and really just across the nation. And so please go over to texasscorecard.com and see what you can do to join the fight for liberty here in Texas. So we've all went through here, or most of us in Texas went through winter storm Uri. It was an unprecedented event in Texas history and really United States history. I haven't gone through and looked at all the blackouts in the uh, history of the United States, but I've looked at some of them. And really, frankly, I can't find any that are as bad in their totality as the, the, the blackouts we faced here in, in, in Texas during Winter Storm Uri. Certainly the, the geographic area was, was probably larger than anything we've ever seen, which in part has something to do with Texas being a very large state. But nonetheless, it was really bad. And there's a lot of reasons why people think we went through that. And we'll talk about some of those on our show today. But why ever that happened and whatever happened, it cost a lot of money. And even why it costs so much money is subject to a lot of debate. But what's not um, up for debate is that Texans are going to be paying the bill for that for a very long time. Uh, we have with us today uh, Robert Bryce, who's written a recent couple of articles on this topic and, uh, and has dug through all the information so that you and I don't have to and come up with a number that he, he suggests that we're going to be facing $10.5 billion in costs when it comes to um, Winter Storm Uri. Texas consumers, Texas electricity consumers, and, and natural gas consumers, if I read his work correctly, are going to be facing those kind of bills. And we're going to be paying that for a long time. So I'm really blessed to have uh, Robert Bryce with us today. Let me just give a little bit of background on him. He, he's an expert on energy, uh, and he has written a lot about that. He's an author. He's a journalist and he's a public speaker, and he goes about talking about this issue, which is so complex, but yet so central to the, the wealth and prosperity that we have in our lives. And so it's really valuable to have somebody like Robert who is breaking down all this information so that we can better understand how to maintain our wealth and prosperity by having a reliable, affordable electric grid. Among other things, he's the author of a book, A Question of Power, Electricity and the Nation's and the Wealth of Nations. And you can find that book and a lot more about Robert at his website, robertbryce.com. So Robert, welcome to the Liberty Cafe. Thanks a lot. Uh, happy to be with you, Bill. Good. Uh, I've been on your, I guess you you have not a podcast, but you have a, a video podcast. And I was on that a while back and was, was pleased to be there. And so I'm glad that we can have you on 
on here, but although no, we're glad, sound. Glad, glad to be back. And uh, yeah, happy to dive in. I was just, before we started, we were talking about this, what you pointed out, the 10.5 billion, and I'm still working through it. Yes, you, you pointed out, I've, I've gone through some of the data. I published some preliminary data in Forbes last month, August 25th, I think it was. And I'd just done my own calculations based on published data. And I didn't realize there was an NRG energy and put out a report uh, a friend of mine had, uh, had pointed me to it. So anyway, I wrote two pieces in two days, which is something seldom, but uh, that I've done in the past. But the, yes, you're right. The punchline is about 10.5 billion, and it's consumers in Texas. Their consumers in Oklahoma and in Kansas are also facing increased utility costs that will last, will will continue for decades in the future because of the the damage caused by winter storm Uri and the unpreparedness of the individual utilities, both in power and gas. Uh, for what happened and the and the, and the enormous costs that they incurred uh, because of the storm. So, uh, yes, in Texas alone, it's $10.5 billion, uh, but you have uh, billions more, I think, what is it, uh, $2.8 billion in Oklahoma and uh, uh, the Iowa, Missouri, other states are having somewhat similar, but nothing on the order of magnitude, uh, the orders of magnitude we're seeing here in Texas overall. Well, we, we all recognize the the unprecedented just nature and magnitude of that storm. Uh, I've lived in Texas all my life and never seen anything like that. It was obvi obviously kind of a one in a hundred or maybe one in 200 year storm, that kind of thing. Except it we, could we, happen next year. It could happen in three months, well, right? Well, right. Yeah. It, it's not <laughs> that it can't happen resets. again. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. But, but so it, that was part of it. And, and there were reasons that you know we we weren't prepared for it obviously for whatever reason but why did the cost I mean why did the cost get up to 10.5 billion dollars is electricity really that expensive that just over a period of one week or so that we would incur that high a cost right well remember it's not just electricity and in the the Forbes article that I published on this it was out uh uh, August 26th. I'm just looking at it. It's called Update NRG Funded Report says Texas ratepayers on hook for $10.5 due to URI uh, and Oklahomans face uh, $2.8 in debt. Um, it's not just the, the the power utility. So I'm looking at that list now. So you have uh, oh, for uh, Atmos Energy and uh, Centerpoint, both gas utilities seeking a total of $3 billion, Atmos uh, $2 billion and, and Centerpoint $1 billion. Because they had hedged some of their 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 forward risk on on power, but not necessarily for gas. And then they were short gas when the prices were high, um, and that didn't have anything to do with ERCOT. But it does have something to do, Bill. And you know, you've looked into ERCOT. It's the way that the the, the grid in Texas has evolved to be so dependent on re renewables and natural gas. And the renewables went away; they weren't available when the grid was about to collapse. Wind and solar went to Cancun with Ted Cruz. They they were gone. They weren't here. <laughs> um, but well, as a matter of fact, it's it's kind of a design because all this happened at like one o'clock in the morning. Yes. And it, it's kind of a design feature that solar is not available at one o'clock in the morning, yes, right? Exactly. So they weren't available. And then the grid is on the verge of collapse and, and there's not enough natural gas to go around. So there's all, you know, all of this, this, in, the, the overlap of the electric grid and the gas grid became obvious. And, and, and in the hindsight, no one's talking about the fact that we closed six gigawatts of coal. So we made the electric grid in order or excessively dependent on one fuel and left us vulnerable because we didn't have enough baseload generation that had on-site fuel. So there was a basic lack overall of the understanding of the need for energy security across both the gas grid and the electric grid. And that, that what we see now is the consumers, of course, they always end up paying the bill. 
right? But the, the key question is how do we, you know, what's the policy that's going to cure this? Because the system is still being flooded with weather dependent renewables. And I'll end by just saying, which makes absolutely zero sense. If we're facing more extreme weather because of climate change, we don't want our system, our most important networks to be dependent on the weather. But yet that's because of the way that its subsidies are distorting the capacity of the, the amount of generation in Texas. That's exactly what's happening. So we, we face a, the grid is becoming more and more fragile, I guess. I'll end with that point, Bill, but we, you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. So, so that makes up a really good point. I mean, so We've we've got these renewables coming in and and to the state of Texas in large part it seems because of these subsidies. Now there's subsidies both at the the state level and the federal level, and which are part of part of this whole problem. What what kind of I mean what kind of magnitude are we talking about when it comes to how much investment there's been in renewables in Texas over the last. 20 years or so. Right. Uh, so my my figures, well, it's actually not my data. It's data directly from the Wind Energy Association. Their own numbers put it at about 66 billion. Well, their own numbers are about 60 billion total for wind and then another six or so or more than that for solar. But that's not, that's only part of the story. And that's the investment that was made in the years before the blackout. Um, and, but why did that happen? It was because they got, as your numbers point out, uh, I need to follow. I need to just pull it up real quickly. But over twenty billion dollars, and uh, no, it's more than that. Uh, the, the the massive amount of subsidies was is what motivated uh, all of that spending. So the the and and all, I, I want to point out that there are numerous reports where Wood McKenzie and and the Texas uh, section of the Society of Civil Engineers have pointed directly to the problem of over dependence on weather dependent renewables, and that is one of the fundamental problems. And until ERCOT can solve that. The grid is going to remain, I think, in a in a difficult position, and consumers going to pay the cost. Yeah, I was just up at the Capitol testifying last week on Chapter Three Thirteen property oh, tax right. abatements. Yeah, right. Which are you know any almost any kind of business can uh, get those types of abatements. You know, the the in the case of Chapter Three Thirteen, it's a school district saying, "Hey, come invest in our." school district and and we'll cut your property taxes in half for 10 years basically is what they say but more and more that is being used to uh, buy renewable energy generators and uh, i was looking at the data for this and there are now so this this program's going away at the end of december and so everybody's piling in to try and get their their cut of this this government money or actually taxpayer money right. by getting getting their uh, their taxes cut and there are about four hundred projects trying to get under the, in under the wire three hundred of those are wind or solar and the overwhelming number of those is solar right oh, yeah. wind wind is seeming to take a uh, back seat now to uh, solar when it comes to new generation in Texas why, why is that going on. Well, I, I think it's there's more. There has been more clarity on the investment tax credit. I also think that uh, um, this is simply the evolution of the industry. That it's harder and harder to cite wind, and I think the industry is turning more to solar. Um, and I think uh, that in the there's as I said a little more clarity in terms of the future of the ITC. Although now that has been made clear with Manchin Schumer, uh, but nevertheless, I just I want to make sure I'm citing your numbers here, Bill, because they are yours. Uh, in about $66 billion was spent on solar and, and wind in Texas in the years before the blackouts, and they got $21.7 billion, really $22 billion in state and federal subsidies. And those are, that $21.7 is your number from a report that you published for the, for the Energy Alliance. So um, that's a massive amount of subsidization. 
and you know there you call it tax credits whatever you want to do but that's what is driving this ch change in the makeup of the of er, the ERCOT electric grid and there is no new thermal generation new gas generation being built in the state um, by gas fired large gas fired generation instead it's all wind and solar and by the end of next year wind and solar could have more capacity than all natural gas fired generation in the state that's a pretty good return on investment. I'd like to get that where I, you know, put in, you know, a dollar, you know, thousand dollars on something, and I get three hundred thirty-three dollars back before I even worry yeah. about what the market is going to pay me. Right? Count me in. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I'm opposed to subsidies, Bill, unless I'm getting them. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Amen. That's why I have solar panels on the roof of my house. <laughs> What I write about this business and I got solar panels. Why? Because I got big fat subsidy from the feds, from the city. And then for a while they were paying me a hundred dollars a megawatt hour. I thought, well, shoot, I'm getting 20, you know, four times the wholesale price in Texas for a while. It's Bring a pretty it. nice deal if you can get it. So Heck yes. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the cost a little bit. So yeah. one of the things that, I mean, again, th this was a bad storm. Systems went down. Obviously there's going to be cost to this, but, one of the costs that that drove it up to this this level of of ten billion dollars, and and that's just, I think we got to put this in context, right? That 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 ten billion dollars is just the ten point five or whatever it's going to be ultimately is just right. the debt that we're going to have to pay off. That doesn't account the higher electricity bills that that we had to pay during the storm and and after the storm and things like that, right? And and that we're paying now. I mean, yeah. we've seen dramatic increases in utility prices all across, all around the state. I'm here in Austin, and Austin did really, frankly, just incredibly well during the storm. They made money, $54 million, something Austin Energy did. You know, CPS in San Antonio lost a billion dollars. Brazos Electric, 1.8, I, I, although it appears they've settled in bankruptcy for something like 1.4. Um, but let me just run through, if I don't mind, I'll just hit on a couple of these numbers. So ERCOT itself has requested recovery of around $2.1 billion. And then Brazos Electric, 2.1 roughly. And these are directly from the NRG report. Atmos Energy, 2 billion. Centerpoint, 1.1 billion. CPS, a billion. Uh, and then some of the others, oh, uh, Rayburn Country. And Rayburn Country Electric Co-op has already securitized about $908 million in debt. And they've said that that defeasing that, uh, the, or uh, defeasing that debt or paying it off will be take something like 27 years. So a lot of these bonds that are going to be issued that are implicitly backed by the state, um, they will be paid off over the next 30 years. And it will be uneven. As I said, you know, if you don't, if you have an all electric home, you won't be paying off debt that was incurred by a gas utility. But some of these other things you will be, and it depends on, on, on where you are. But right now reading this list, I'm glad I'm a customer, captive customer of a, of a, of a monopoly utility, Austin Energy. Yeah, it's um, it, the the whole system is is really confused. We've got competition on the one side for most Texans when they're buying their electricity, but but some of us are still captured by either a, a muni in your case, or I used to be, but now I'm out in the uh, the hill country, and so I've got um, well, whatever cooperative is it is out here that oh that wow I, Peacock, you should know your co-op, you're an owner uh, there. Come on now, Blue Bonnet. Cooperatives Blue are bonnet. one of the, the the living remnants of the New Deal. I'm a big fan of co-ops. I'm a big fan of publicly owned power and and electric and and gas utilities. 
Well, that's good, except when you're captured and you can't get it from anywhere else. But anyway, that's it. But so there's <laughs> now we're going to get into a philosophical argument about monopoly versus free market, and I don't. Here's the thing: we'll all cut to it on the free market. I just electricity is different, Bill, and we talked about it as a commodity. Electricity is different. It's not a molecule. It's a service. It's not a commodity, and we can't let the service fail. And I think that's where some of the policy, a lot of the policy, jumps the rails, right? Because no, you can't allow this network to fail. And yet we're treating it as a commodity and treating it rather cavalierly. And I think that's the the root of a lot of the problems we're having in the system. And I'm just going to throw that stake down in the sand. And, and I get that point. And, and I've heard that argument quite a bit. Um, I would just respond to that by saying, I've also heard, you know, I've been around this business for a little while and I've worked on a number of issues sure. where... People have come to me and said, because, you know, I worked for a free market think tank and politicians on the Republican side, at least, want to be seen as champions of the free market. Oh, I know. And so so yeah. when I'm going up there, not not that all of them are, and they get kind of angry at me when I come point out that they may not be that. Uh, but then they come to me afterwards and say, look, Bill, you know, I'm as free market as the next guy. But free markets just don't work in this industry. And they'll po point to homeowners insurance or electricity or wherever they, title insurance, wh wherever it is. And so I'm a little skeptical when, and I, and I get your point, but I'm a little skeptical of arguments to say that free markets work everywhere except here. Okay, so, well, but fair enough. But but yeah. electricity, I heard a great quote the other day, and, and I was talking about it with a friend, apparently from a, uh, someone who worked at FERC, and I don't know the origin, but natural gas is a commodity, electricity is a phenomenon, which I, kind of, I truly did like, because it is a phenomenon. And, you know, this idea that this system is beating at 60 cycles per second, right? And the electrons aren't just bouncing back and forth. I mean, it's truly astonishing, the whole thing. But the network is different. And I'll, anyway, we could, we take more than an hour if we kind of, you know, wanted to follow that yeah. one, Bill. So there's a lot. No, I, I know that. Well, here's another thing kind of related to that in, in some okay. sense that, that the, so this, this $10 billion and, and the cost of electricity during that one week was, I mean, some people have estimated it up to be close to $30 billion or yes. more. The, yeah. the actual purchased prices of electricity was purchased during that week. $30 billion, perhaps some, some people say 16, you know, you know, lots of different numbers. Was, I don't think it was 30 because not all of the providers were paying the $9,000 a megawatt right. hour. Right. Right. But so, but why was the price of electricity at $9,000? Cause if, you know, if I look at my phone today, well, matter of fact, I've got my phone right here. So if you'll give me just a second, I'll pull up my little ERCOT app and look at it and the price of electricity wholesale price of electricity today in Texas is averaging about 70 bucks uh -huh. per meg megawatt hour. Now, a significant increase because the system is so dependent on gas now and that gas prices have gone up. And because they let the market supposedly take over, we have a flood of natural gas and more natural gas dependence than we should have. Then that's hurting right. consumers, and so anyway, that's an because that's a fairly high price, seventy bucks. But it's also yeah, really it's a it's a fairly high price, but compared to what was going on that week, it, it was <laughs> yeah, chicken feed, right? Nine thousand, yeah, we're getting it was nine thousand. <laughs> but w when the market was collapsing, or after it had collapsed, the the price of electricity was trading at about two thousand dollars per megawatt hour. Right, the market had come to that. It only went to nine thousand. When the the bureaucrats, the commissioners at the Public Utility Commission looked at 
economic theory and said, oh, well, if if the market is in failure and we have this this supply of electricity, we can't meet the demand. Obviously, prices should be at the market cap, which is nine thousand dollars. And so they said, obviously, the market is not working properly. So they arbitrarily raised the price from two thousand dollars a megawatt hour to nine thousand dollars per megawatt hour. Was one of the big human blunders here in in real time human blunders, right? I think there were longer term blunders in terms of how the market was set up. And you and I can differ on those issues, but I'll agree with you. The fact that they inter the Public Utility Commission, and I don't know why there's a lot of speculation around the governor and who called who and why they did it. But the the, 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 the notion to raise it to 9,000, then leave it there. I mean, it could have been justified if they'd done it for a few hours, but that was the problem. They left it at 9,000 for nearly what was it, three days or more than three days, whatever it was. And so there was this implied huge cost, which wasn't all that, not all of those, and I've made that mistake in some of my math, but that was a big mistake. And it was one that was done by, you know, let's call it out. Deanne Walker was the chairperson of the of the PUC then. Why did they leave it there? It there st we still haven't had a good explanation of why that was done. So I'll agree with you that this tampering with the market and, who, and this price setting was a big failure. And one of the other the uh, myriad other things that that were contributing to this uh, as well, including some blame on, you know, weatherization for the gas guys and la, 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 you know, all these issues. Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the points I like to make about this is that the, the problem there was that they, they refused to let the market work and said they decided to apply market theory that belongs in academia to a real live operating market because they're thinking, oh, if we just boost the price of electricity, then that will incentivize more electricity to come online, more generation to come online. But there was a problem with that theory in that there was no more generation to come online. Right. It was right. it was frozen or it was broken or it was out of natural gas, right. whatever it was, there was nothing left to incentivize anybody else right. to come online. And that should have been understood quickly by the people running the system saying, well, we're not seeing any more new generation. We need to you know take the cap down. And they didn't do it. Um, so I think to me, you know, Bill, what's important is to think about, okay, well, what's next? Okay. So we've, can, we, we've, we're getting a better and better po postmortem of the of winter storm Uri. To me, what's the question as we look at the future? Well, I think we be, we, the Texas grid has become too dependent on, on, on gas and, renew and, and renewables. We need more baseload power. I don't think we're going to be building any more coal fired power plants, even in Texas, right? I don't think there's much of a future for coal in the U S because of the political headwinds particularly under this administration. That's it. Well, if that's the case, then we, I'm going to repeat what I've been saying for many years, which is we have to embrace the atom. We need to do more nuclear and we need to get started. And I think it could work in Texas, but you're going to need some kind of market reform in Texas. It's going to value that asset in a, in, in a way that makes it sense for customer or for, for investors to come in. And it's a problem now, even with gas fired generation, it's going to be perhaps even more difficult with nuclear, but I want Texas to lead here. I think we need to be, you know, embracing the future and looking at, well, how do we make sure? What's the priority? Priority isn't necessarily just have an open free market and let everybody play. No, the most important thing is we have a dependable, reliable, affordable source of power that we have 24 seven that is, will not fail. And we need that if we're going to continue growing. And right now, it's just not working. We're not incending enough new reliable generation in the system. So we need reform. Will it happen? <sighs> I wish it would, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not so hopeful because of the entrenched interests. And 
the, the, frankly, the complexity of the system as it exists now and whether it can be even, and I say that humbly because I look at it all and I'm thinking it's a miracle even works as it is. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you brought up nuclear because that, that's something I, I don't spend a lot of time, uh, well, I don't understand very well. It's I'm not talking about just how it functions within the system, but just the the, the building of nuclear generation at all. Obviously, it's been a long time since anybody's built nuclear in the United States or probably around most of the world, I would guess. But but it, it seems to me that the there's I've read enough about that it, in the papers that it seems to be that there are people who are working really hard on innovating yes. new technology when it comes to nuclear energy, but they, they never build it. And that seems to me to be the problem because because there are regulatory barriers that that either just flat out prohibit the building of it of new generations of nuclear or it's so prohibitively expensive to get past all the regulations that people just don't build it. Do you kind of understand? I mean, are yeah, those kind of problems thicket, in the way? The regulatory thicket around nuclear is just incredibly difficult. I mean, it just flat is. And there are many people working around it. And I have been very critical of the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, because of the way they have, they, they rescinded some licenses in, in January that they had already granted. Under the Trump administration, they granted licenses to two nuclear plants. I think it was Turkey Point and uh, Peach Bottom, I think, are the uh, plants. They rescinded them. What, what, is, what kind of regulatory system is this? You give a permit to extend it or not. And now, oh, suddenly you have a new administration. You're going to pull them back. And they threw Oklo Energy out. And this is just a couple of weeks after the Chinese start building a high temperature gas reactor in Shandong province. What in the Lord's name are you doing? What, what, are you, what is your objective here? Now, okay, there is a change, though. We have two new commissioners, finally have a full NRC commission, all five commissioners. There's good noises coming out of the Biden administration last Friday. Uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan wrote to the DOE to save the Palisades nuclear plant in Michigan. On September 1st, the California legislature voted to save Diablo Canyon. Last year, they saved two plants in Illinois. And the NRC, I'll end with this one, recently approved the design from New Scale, uh, New Scale Power, which has a small modular reactor. So if, amidst all the stupid, there's some some signs of hope for nuclear, but we need to get busy and we need, a, as I say, a coast-to-coast build-out, a rapid build-out of, of nuclear for a whole lot of reasons. But one is make sure we have a, a, a resilient electric grid. You got me going here, Peacock. I'm not, I haven't even had, I did have one cup of coffee this afternoon, but you're. <laughs> well, that's great. This is a really good conversation and it kind of leads back uh, to your book uh, yeah. that you wrote and uh, a, a, question of, a question of power. And in, in that book, you, you looked, I mean, you didn't look just at the United States, you looked at a worldwide issue of reliable electricity. Yeah. And, you know, it's, here in Texas, we actually experienced some third world conditions for about a week or so when, you know, we, we didn't have electricity. A lot of us didn't have electricity or water. Um, you know, I, in my house, I was fortunate enough to live next to a, uh, or right around the corner from a nursing home. So I never ran out of electricity, but I didn't have water for about a week. Mm -hmm. I was melting snow. I had fish tanks outside catching snow off the roof you know, run off off the roof, all these kinds of things. I mean, you would never expect to experience here. Yet those kind of experiences are not that unexpected in, in different parts of the world. Can, can you kind of explain to us why America is so far ahead of the rest of the world when it, when it comes to having a stable, reliable electric grid? Sure. 
Well, I like that question, Bill, and it's something I've thought about quite a lot because I have, for the last six years, I've been all over the world. I'm a very fortunate man. I mean, let me just be clear. I'm grateful. I, 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 you know, I get to go around the world and talk to people about the most important issues in the, in, in the world today, you know, energy and power systems. And going around the world, looking at the world through the lens of electricity, India, Iceland, Lebanon, Puerto Rico, what did I understand? What, what is, to me, clear? Electric grids provide almost a, a perfect reflection of the societies they, they power. So in Beirut, the, the, because the system is, because the entire government, the whole government, everything is corrupt in, in Lebanon, right? It's very factional between the Shia, the, the Sunni, and the uh, Maronites. And so they all have one thing, that, and, and so the corruption is everywhere. So the grid doesn't work. And so because the grid doesn't work, nearly everyone in Lebanon pays two electric bills, one to the generator mafia, and the other to Electricité du Liban, which is the, the state-owned utility. But EDL can't provide power all the time, so people have two bills. They pay the generator mafia when the main power plant goes out, which it's almost always out now because Lebanon is in an ongoing crisis that is absolutely crippling the whole country, that they do whatever they have to do. So what, I, what is clear to me is that you have to have esprit de grid. You have to have a society in which people believe in the system and they have to pay for their own electricity. They can't steal it. Otherwise, the whole system degrades. So, uh, you know, it's a very difficult thing to to make to establish and to to make work electric grids at scale. And the U.S. and advanced countries have done it because they have the rule of law. They have people that respect the law. They, you know, and in places where you don't have that rule of law, where the system, the society doesn't work, the electric grid isn't going to work. What distinguishes, I mean, how did we get to the place where we can have this kind of a grid? Because one of the reasons I'm asking this question is, so we've got this nice solid electricity grid, but as we saw just a year or so ago, sometimes that can be a danger. How, how did we get here? And and then sure. how, did, how can we sustain that and not turn back into a third world country? Well, I think at first it, it takes a... a I think some sobriety on the part of the policymakers to to sit back and say, wait a minute, we can't monkey around with this system. This is too important. We can't just leave it to the market. We can't have overbearing government. We we but we need sobriety and we need to finally balance that uh, that that tension between government and 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 uh, private enterprise. And there is the lie. I think to turn it back to nuclear, then Bill is. Therein lies the part that is going to require real finesse, and I don't use that word very often, but I think it's the right one, is that, okay, if we're going to incent nuclear energy to be built, how, what are the, what's the way to make it happen? And I think that eventually the U.S. government is going to have to have some kind of a national champion, similar to Ross Adam or in, in, in Russia or, or uh, uh, SK Power, I think, in, in South Korea, uh, that you have companies that are have strong government backing and the government is bought in so that they will handle the waste, for instance, which is an issue that only governments really are going to be qualified or be able to say, okay, we'll manage the waste or we'll govern the waste. There are a lot of supply chain issues here that just require, they require stable governments and civil society. And that is a big requirement. Yeah, well, I'm all for stable governments and civil society. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that it seems like over history that uh, overwinning governments have, in fact, led to less stable governments no, no and less stable it. societies. No, no doubt about it. But let me do, I'll just finish one point on that because I was in Chicago last week and I love Chicago. I hadn't been there in some time. Samuel Insel, who's one of the most famous and most vilified uh, titans of the electric age, was really a great innovator and knew that electricity was a natural monopoly. 
And so he actually sought regulation from the government because he said, look, we're in natural monopoly. It makes no sense for everybody to string wires to every house. It won't work, right? We're a natural monopoly. You've got to, you know, we need proper regulation. So again, I mean, this is tricky and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I, there's a nuance here between this and balance. And I think it's a difficult one. And I understand, I take your point about you don't want too much government, but you don't want too little either. <laughs> well, here, here, here's my problem in Texas is that, so, uh, you know, First of all, I think we have to start with the concept that blackouts are okay because, and there's proof of that is because we experience blackouts in Texas all the time, all the way across the country. People have blackouts all the time. You have a storm come through, the wires go down, and then there's a blackout and you're out of power for 30 minutes or an hour or something like that. And, and so we had this major storm come through. And if the, the system would have worked the way it was supposed to have worked, then what we would have had it would have a series of either no blackouts or a system of rolling blackouts where we're all out with for about 30 minutes or something like that. The power comes back up, but, but nobody is harmed or damaged by that kind of thing. But, but what we saw, in fact, was the, the, the government, if you will, made, made a hash of that. First of all, we had government, ERCOT, acting as a basically a handmaiden of government, turning off power uh, to natural gas plants that are pumping electric natural gas into the system, right? I mean, just cu cutting off power like that. Then we have the the PUC coming in and raising prices to $9,000 per megawatt hour. Even if we'd had these blackouts, if the prices were at $2,000 and they were dropping back down as stuff was coming online, we might see a billion dollars worth of debt or less rather than the $10 billion we have today. And then the Texas legislature, you know, so the, the way the ERCOT protocols work out that, that ERCOT can, I mean, ERCOT or the PUC can reverse decisions by, or the PUC can reverse decisions by ERCOT within 30 days. So the, the PUC could have come back and said, look, we shouldn't have raised prices like we did. We're just going to put them back down to, um, to where they were. And then when the PUC refused to do that and Governor Abbott refused to tell the PUC to do that, the Texas legislature still had time because they were in session to come and order the, the PUC or ERCOT to do that. None of them came and did that. And one of the reasons I don't, I think they did that, it was because natural gas companies who had made a fortune off of this thing, because when electricity prices went up, so did natural gas. Sure. And then the natural gas companies all chose to enforce their, or implement their, their force majeure provisions right. in their contracts, where they had contracts to deliver natural gas at two bucks or whatever it was. But in but instead they, they delivered it at a hundred bucks right. or whatever it was. And so you had this whole system that was entirely against the interest of consumers and the average Texan. So I, I don't know the exact way to fix that, but it always makes me cautious when I see government messing up things to think that government is the solution to all that. Well, look, I'm, I, and I, you haven't heard me say that. I'm not saying it's the solution to all that, but right. what we are going to find, and you know, back to where we started, you know, this idea of 10.5, the, the the reality of the 10.5 billion in debt in, that is is going to be securitized in one way or another, and will be repaid by consumers from both gas and and electric utilities. One of the key issues that's looming now is not just the 10.5 billion, 
bill, but is the other uh, civil litigation against um, uh, ERCOT and the big utilities for the failures of the for the failure the power failures, and it, then that leads to my point here. The, the key question is: Is uh, ERCOT a, a state entity? Because ERCOT has been claiming sovereign immunity, and so far they have not been. The courts have saying, "No, you're not a sovereign. You don't. You, you are not a part of the state." So what is it? Again, this goes back to one of the fundamental problems and the belief in where we'll disagree is this idea of the RTO and the regional transmission organization and the restructuring of the market that was favored by Enron. I, I, my first book was on Enron that, oh, well, we'll just treat electricity like a commodity. And well, OK, it worked for a while. And, you know, a lot of independent power producers made a lot of money and a lot of traders made a lot of money. But has it been good for the consumer? And I would argue still, again, that it is not. And this $10.5 billion is going to be paid by the consumer. And if ERCOT is found liable in the courts and doesn't have sovereign immunity, the $10.5 billion could be just down payment. I mean, it could be significantly more than that. So just late, yeah. giving you the – because there's a broader skein of issues here that are in the courts now that is going to take a long time to resolve. We're just kind of in the second or third inning now in terms of what is this final cost going to be. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought us back to that because you know, I took I took your article and started doing some pulled the numbers out of that, started doing some research on my own, and then yeah. started started trying to come up with some kind of annual cost to this thing. And and right. my my take on all this is that government messed up, markets messed, market participant messed up, a lot of things messed up. But the bottom line is, if if we hadn't been so focused on renewable energy. Agreed. And getting rid of coal, too. Yeah. None of this would have ever happened. And so I, I, I think it's fair to attribute these costs to uh, the, the, the growth of renewable energy in Texas. So I, I took all these costs and then added the, just the straight subsidies to right. that. And my annualized cost for, for this would be uh, including uh, pro probably next year because the securitization is just kicking in now, but the, the full cost in the first year, I'm estimating to be about $4.4 billion of that. Uh, the securitization is about three quarters of a billion dollars. Uh -huh. uh, ORDC, which is in price adders, which are yeah. things that ERCOT does. And most of the listeners probably won't know it, but it's just the government artificially raising prices in the market. That's $2 billion this year. It looks like it's going to be the congestion cost for bringing uh, renewables in from West Texas, it, there's when it starts blowing, there's so much electricity coming in, it can't get through all the wires. And so that adds congestion costs. That's about $760 billion, I'm sorry, $760 million this year. And then you got the, just the straight up subsidies, which are totaling somewhere in the neighborhood of $900 million. And so that's $4.4 billion I'm coming up with. And then you just run that through, um, you know, what it costs on an average residential bill. Right. And yeah. I'm, I'm estimating about $341 a year. And, and that's going to go on. I mean, I'd like to see those numbers because I, I've been trying to get some numbers on that as well, because I was in fact talking to some guys about this yesterday, some uh, lobbyists, the reliability unit commitment. That's different from the ORDC. ORDC stands for what again? The operating reserve demand curve. Uh, right. Yeah. The, 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 that's the ruck you're talking about yeah. and that's what i that's what i was talking about is the price adders you know uh -huh. that's one of the price adders out there it's it's mainly the stuff that's running on the ancillary market now we're kind of talking back and forth like we're having coffee instead of our, talking to our to our audience but but i think this is all important stuff right right well i've just pulled up the other piece that i wrote about forbes and this is from january and uh to me it's interesting my brother's in the insurance business my father was in the insurance business and and they've 
uh, had some success at it. And my brother is great and wonderful in business. And I talked to him about this after I saw this first article about it. And then I wrote about it. But 131 different insurers are facing uh, have sued ERCOT. 131 insurers. So, but you also have individual property and casualty, and you know, for slip and fall and other kinds of and 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 tort claims uh, against ERCOT. So, but these insurers are suing because they lost money and they have people coming to them and they're saying, well, hey, it's not us. The ERCOT is the one that's that's responsible here. So, just bring it back to this again to just reinforce the 10.5 billion is a lot of money. But if ERCOT is found to be liable and the legislature doesn't grant sovereign immunity. Well, what is that going to look like? I mean, because it's going to be a mass tort claim against effectively the state because they, I'm going to say it again, the bad market design and um, I think just simply a, a misapprehension of what the, what we're dealing with here. So um, I take it back to some of this idea that that, that we're selling a, com- a a service as a commodity and this idea of restructuring and somehow we're going to let the market work. Well, not seeing it work so well here. Yeah, it's a mess. And, and you're right. The, these lawsuits against ERCOT, uh, if they're allowed to proceed, are either or not really against ERCOT. They're either against Texas rate payers or Texas taxpayers. That's who's going to be on, on the hook here. Yeah. So. Well, and there's a lot of overlap between the rate payers and the taxpayers. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same bunch of folks, right? <laughs> right exactly. One way or another, we're going to get it. I guess, well, I don't know whether my, I guess my kids were, you know, even young kids with their pet buying some, they are, ta- they are taxpayers because they're paying sales tax at the, at the grocery store or at the, you know, the, here, I'm going to date myself here at the five and dime. <laughs> like we have a five and dime anymore at 7-Eleven while they're buying a slushy or a bag of potato chips. Well, I think that's a, that's a good place to bring our conversation to an end, uh, Robert. And okay. I really appreciate you being uh, on the Liberty Cafe this week. Always happy to do it, Bill. There's much to talk about. Uh, wish you the best of luck. Always happy to talk about ERCOT and, and start shaking our heads about, darn, this is complicated. <laughs> and don't forget, you can go to robertbryce.com and find out all you need to know about electricity. And I really highly recommend his book uh, uh, that he wrote, uh, question, question of Power, right? Elect, uh, elect, uh, question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. And I'm on Twitter at Power Hungry, PWR Hungry. And now, Bill, I'm on TikTok. Yes, you heard it right. TikTok. I'm on PWR Hungry on TikTok. I'm on YouTube. I'm omnipresent. And my podcast is the Power Hungry Podcast. Uh, so, oh, in my film, my documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Yeah, I'm, I'm in multiple properties here. Peacock, I'm selling the soap. All right. Well, thank you, Robert, for being here. And thanks to all the listeners for coming in and listening to us today. And, and also, once again, thanks to our sponsor, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.